Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. This week's Parsha is Nitzavim. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshe Amit Synagogue in Chicago speaks with author Jonathan Eig. What is the glue that connects the Jewish people? Is it strong enough to hold us together? So as we come to the final chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses pulls the people together and they have this remarkable covenantal ceremony. And Moses includes not only the people who are there, but even the people who are not there. And so from this perspective, all of us, the souls that were born at that time, and the souls that will be born, you and I, and then those who will come after us, all Jews were part of this covenantal ceremony. We all enter together. And then Moses says something truly remarkable, because he's clearly concerned that after his death, will people still feel like they can engage Torah, or can they even keep the Torah? And he says, surely this instruction, which I enjoin upon you this day, is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond your reach. It is not in the heavens that you should say, who among us can go up to heaven and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea. You should say, who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it? No, the thing is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to observe it. So is this just a pep talk that says you can keep this law no matter how arcane, irrelevant, or strange it makes you feel? Or is Moses saying you should feel free to interpret the law to make sure it's always relevant to you. Oh, well, maybe both, but it feels more like a pep talk to me, and it feels like one that you know I can relate to. I feel like in my own family, I've seen it become more and more difficult, more effort required as each, with each generation. You know, my grandparents kept kosher; they lived in New York. They moved to Puerto Rico. As my grandfather was sent down there to work at a factory, a bra factory, and they had to decide: like, can we keep kosher in Puerto Rico? Like, is that possible? And and they did. They had food shipped in. Um, but my mother, meanwhile, got married and started her own home and wasn't as important anymore. She still was going to raise the kids Jewish, and we all went to Hebrew school, but we didn't have a kosher home. We had ham occasionally. Like, it was disgusting, but we did. And, it, like, she got over it. You know, she was assimilating. She was becoming more Americanized than her parents, and we lived in a neighborhood that wasn't all Jewish, and nobody was going to know what we were doing, whether we lit Shabbat candles or not. And then of the three kids in my generation— Two of us married Jews, one didn't. So you see this erosion gradually, um, nothing dramatic. What I hear Moses saying is like, hang in there. You know, you can, you, can, you, you can keep this up no matter how far you are removed from your origins, from how far removed you are from receiving the Ten Commandments. You know, it's interesting. As you were telling the story of your family, which is mirrored in thousands and thousands of other Jewish families, what I was hearing was a story about choice, I'm imagining your grandparents' decision to go to Puerto Rico, but then weighing the kosher food issue as not being a choice for them. They, they were, in their mind, they didn't have an identity issue as far as being Jews. That's simply who they were. So the notion of going to Puerto Rico and not eating kosher food, it didn't enter their mind. It was either we could get kosher food there and go or not. And your mother's generation was living in a neighborhood that was that had Jews and non-Jews. So nobody was actually paying attention to what was in her shopping cart. That's right. 
or whether or not they showed up in synagogue over Shabbat. And so the choice felt more like it was your mother's. And then your siblings, right, made choices. That's right. And your children are making choices. And that brings us back to Moses. For Moses, the law is the connection to God and the most basic element of Jewish identity as a religion, that which has a binding hold on you. What we are dealing with in America today, it feels like, is more an ethnicity, something I can, I can put on when I feel like it and take it off, like a sweater or um, a pair of shoes. I, I'm going to wear these today because it, it makes sense, to, but tomorrow I'm not, I may not want to wear them. Yeah, should we even call these laws anymore? Or are they just suggestions? Are they ideas? Or helpful hints, right? Uh, no, I'm being serious. I, I don't think that most people follow them in the way you would follow a law. It really feels like these are a set of, of options for you. And based on your tradition, it might make you feel good to follow some of these laws, but meh, you don't have to. Which laws do you really have to follow to be allowed to be a Jew? I'll see that and I'll, <laughs> I'll up the ante here. I know that many rabbis struggle with this notion of how do I sell the idea to you? Well, kashrut makes you more conscious of the suffering of animals. Kashrut should make you more conscious about our impact on the world. But that's not the starting point for Moses's perspective. It's a law. It's, it's, it's this how Jews eat. Right. This is how Jews observe time. And Moses is saying, I know that there's going to come a time when you're going to struggle with these laws. So I'm telling you, A, that you can do it. But the rabbis understood this also as that you can interpret the law. But there was never a question in the rabbis' minds. I'm talking about the rabbis from the Mishnah and the Talmud and going forward. There was never a question whether or not those laws were binding, that they were obligated. Today, it's kind of the Martin Marty idea of American religion as sort of a, a salad bar. Well, I like beets, so I'm going to have some of these, and I, but I don't like mushrooms, and so on and so forth. And is that really religion, or is that sort of just the American ethnicity? Yeah, uh, and it's not just American, and it's not just uh, Judaism that's affected by this. I think especially as societies become more diverse and more affluent and you see more assimilation going on, people take religion and choose, like you said, the salad bar. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but uh, I'm not, that part doesn't work for me. It gives me indigestion. So if you do enough of that, though, does the religion lose all meaning? Well, that's a good question. And I think that's something that we are constantly struggling with. Do we speak about Judaism as a relationship with God that has, like any other relationship, a set of obligations that go with it. There are boundaries in any relationship. And if we choose to be in that relationship, we choose those boundaries because it's a way of acknowledging the relationship. Or do we say that these are folk ways that we've taken on over the course of time and that it connects us to our grandparents and other people over, over time, but they really don't have anything to do with God because I don't really want to think about God it just has to do with me feeling good about my Jewish ties and my tribalism. There's something about, you know, I, wanna, I want my kids to be Jewish. I want my grandchildren to be Jewish. That's important because of our history. I have an obligation to make sure that we continue to be Jewish going forward. Or is even that up for grabs? Yeah, I would say that 
if all we're counting on is that sense of history and the connection to our grandparents, we're in trouble. If we are counting on that tribalism to make us feel like a community, especially in this day and age when we feel more and more isolated, that we have our friendships over Facebook and over our phones, if being Jewish, if being part of that community makes us feel like we have a place we belong in the world, then I think we've got a chance. Then this, this thing might work. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Because when you talked about community, you immediately went to Facebook. Yeah, which I see as the enemy of community, even though it's, I see it as fake community. Well, I'm not sure your children would agree with you on that. They would not. They would not. They, they, have, they would say they have a different definition. And Dad, you are so unbelievably judgmental. I, I get a lot of that, it. yeah. Yeah, well, as do I. And I think most parents. But the reality is, is that for Jews, community was a place not only where I would have an opportunity to just be together, it was a place where we observe together, right? So what happens here on a Shabbat morning or a Friday night or at a life cycle event is that we are coming together as a particular community to observe in a particular way. And that makes me feel connected to you or to someone else, even if I don't know you. And so a religious community is a place where we do something that's really unusual in American society, I say this with sadness, where people from different socioeconomic places gather with people of all ages and sit in a room together and engage as a community because that's who you are. And part of the admission to that community has been, over time, observance. So there's been a huge shift. In other words, for your grandparents, if they chose not to keep kosher or they chose not to go to synagogue on Shabbat or chose not to belong to a synagogue, they would be opting out of the Jewish community. The Jewish community had boundaries. And they all lived within walking distance. They saw each other. They knew who was showing up and who wasn't showing up. They knew who was shopping at the kosher butcher and who wasn't. So there was a stigma attached. There was a sense of real community there that we do succeed in replicating to some degree when you walk in the doors here. Uh, I feel it when I walk in the doors here, and it's one of the things I love most. But when you walk out, not as much. Not so much. But we've reversed that idea. The idea was that there were boundaries. And now we break down the boundaries, right? We lower the bar. We use that term of entry, lower the bar of entry, Mm -hmm. which is the inverse of that. So how do I lower the bar of entry? Well... We open the door and we aggressively pursue interfaith families. We're constantly, no, those boundaries, don't pay attention to those. We want you to be part of the room. Well, what happens when we go in the opposite direction? Does Jewish law, can, can we even talk about Jewish law from a perspective when mitzvah is understood as a nice thing to do or a Jewish thing to do, but it isn't understood as a commandment, which is what the word means. Right. right? We've totally rethought it. Yeah, it's tricky. If you take down too many walls, then you have nothing left uh, but this sprawling mess. And how you strike that balance is a really interesting question. Well, the pendulum swings. So some of us are banking on the fact that the pendulum will begin to swing back. And the more we create communities of meaning, people will discover and interpret what they want, how they want to uh, walk on the Jewish road. Halakha is the way in which we walk, the way in which we go. That's the code word for Jewish law. It's interesting that in our tradition, we don't refer to Jewish law as deen, law. 
we in fact we call it the way in which to walk mm. as if to say the road will shift there are curves along the way and i think we're in a particular moment in american jewish history where we are really testing the boundaries and asking exactly the kinds of questions that you've been raising that your family history speaks to now what yeah well what we, you know we spoke in another week about the importance of of stories and the importance of having enemies having foes something we had to overcome to survive i would argue that if if i were pitching a marketing campaign to you for Judaism, I would say that the foe that we need to overcome now is the isolation caused by social media, by all the electronic factors that have invaded our lives and turned us into people who stare at our screens and don't engage with the community. That's the enemy now. And religion can fight that. Religion can bring us together in meaningful ways. And those rules that we see sometimes as being a real pain in the butt can give us the sense of structure that the community needs. So it's not just creating a place for Jews to go, but communities of meaning. I think if we can if we can focus on the fact that so much of what we're missing, so much of the, the real communication, the real relationships that we're missing in our lives can be found in a house of worship, we make a, a better argument for, for showing up. I'm with you, and it just takes us back to the name of the portion, Nitzavim, to stand. What, is it, what does it take for us? To not just stand together because we happen to be in the same place at the same time, but what is the story we tell and the laws that we observe that allow us to stand together in the fullest way? Thanks a lot, John.